0: Chapter Eight of Historic Boyhoods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Historic Boyhoods by Rupert S. Holland. Chapter Eight John Paul Jones, The Boy of the Atlantic, seventeen forty seven to seventeen ninety two the summer afternoon was fair and the waves that rolled upon the north shore of solway firth in the western lowlands of scotland were calm and even but the tide was coming in and inch by inch was covering the causeway that led from shore to a high rock some hundred yards away the rock was bare of vegetation and sheer on the landward side but on the face toward the sea were rough jutting points that would give a climber certain footholds and near the top smooth ledges on one or two of these ledges seagulls had built their nests tucked in under projecting points where they would be sheltered from wind and rain now the gulls would sweep in from sea curving in great circles until they reached their homes and then would sit on the ledge calling to their mates across the water except for the cries of the gulls however the rock was very quiet The lazy, regular beat of the waves about its base was very soothing. On the longest ledge, below the seagull's nests, lay a boy about twelve years old, sound asleep, his face turned toward the ocean. Either the gull's cries or the sun, now slanting in the west, disturbed him. He did not open his eyes, but he clenched his fists and muttered incoherently. Presently, with a start, he awoke. He rubbed his eyes and then sat up what a queer dream. He said aloud The ledge where he sat was not a very safe place There was scarcely room for him to move and directly below him was the sea But this boy was quite as much at home on high rocks or in the water as he was on land And he was very fond of looking out for distant sailing vessels and wondering where they might be bound he glanced along the north shore to the little fishing hamlet of Arbigland, where he lived. He saw that the tide had come in rapidly while he slept, and that the path to the shore was now covered. He stood up and stretched his bare arms, brown with sunburn, high over his head, and then he started to climb down from the ledge by the jutting points of rock he was as sure-footed as any mountaineer his clothes were old so neither rock nor sea could do them much harm his feet were bare he was short but very broad and his muscles were strong and supple when he came to the foot of the rock he stood a moment hunting for the deepest pool at its base and then loosing his hold he dove into the water In a few seconds he was up again floating on his back and a little later He struck out swimming hand over hand toward a sandy beach to the south a Young man wearing the uniform of a lieutenant in the British Navy stood on the beach watching the boy swim When the latter had landed and shaken the water from him, much as a dog would the man approached him Where on earth did you come from John Paul? He asked with a laugh the first thing I knew I saw you swimming in from the sea I was out on the rock asleep, said the boy. The tide came up and cut me off, and, oh, Lieutenant Pearson, I had the strangest dream. I dreamt I was in the middle of a great sea fight. I was captain of a ship, and her yard arms were on fire, and we were pouring broadsides into the enemy, afraid any minute that we'd sink. How we did fight that ship! The young officer's eyes glowed. And I hope you may some day, John, he exclaimed. But the strangest part was our ship didn't fly the English flag said the boy at the masthead was a flag I'd never seen red and white with a blue field filled with stars in the corner. What country's flag is that? Pearson thought for a moment There is no such flag. He said finally I know them all and there's none like that The rest of your dream may come true, but not that about the flag come let's be walking back to arbigland although john paul's father came of peaceful farmer and fisher folk who lived about solway firth his mother had been a highland lassie descended from one of the fighting clans in the grampian hills the boy had much of the highlanders love of wild adventure and found it hard to live the simple life of the fishing village the sea appealed to him and he much preferred it to the small scotch parish school his family were poor and as soon as he was able he was set to steering fishing yawls and hauling lines at Twelve he was as sturdy and capable as most boys at 20 Many men in our had heard John Paul beg his father to let him cross the Solway to the port of Whitehaven and ship on some vessel bound for America where his older brother William had found a new home but his father saw no opening for his younger son in such a life all the way back to town that afternoon the boy told lieutenant pearson of his great desire and the young officer said he would try to help him the boy's chance however came in another way a few days later it chanced that mr james younger a big ship owner was on the landing place of Arbigland when some of the villagers caught sight of a small fishing yawl beating up against a stiff northeast squall, trying to gain the shelter of the little tidal creek that formed the harbor of the town. Mr. Younger looked long at that boat and then shook his head. I don't think she'll do it, he said dubiously. Yet the boat came on, and he could soon see that the only crew were a man and a boy. The boy was steering handling the sheets and giving orders while the man simply sat on the gunwale to trim the boat Who's the boy asked the shipowner. John Paul said a bystander. That's his father there Mr.. Younger looked at the man pointed out who was standing near and who did not seem to be in the least alarmed Are you the lad's father? He asked yes, that's my boy John conning the boat said he he'll fetch her in this isn't much of a squall for him the father spoke the truth the boy handled his small craft with such skill that he soon had her alongside the wharf as soon as john paul had landed mr younger stepped up to the father and asked to be introduced to the son then the shipowner told him how much he had admired his seamanship and asked if he would care to sail as master's apprentice in a new vessel he owned which was fitting out for a voyage to virginia and the west indies The boy's eyes danced with delight. He begged his father to let him go, and finally Mr. Paul consented. The twelve-year-old boy had won his wish to go to sea. A few days later the Brig Friendship sailed from Whitehaven with small John Paul on board, and after a slow voyage which lasted thirty-two days, dropped anchor in the Rappahannock River of Virginia. The life of a colonial trader was very pleasant in 1760. The sailing vessels usually made a triangular voyage, taking some six months to go from England to the colonies, then to the West Indies, and so east again. About three of the six months were spent at the small settlements on shore, discharging goods from England, taking on board cotton and tobacco, and bartering with the merchants. The Virginians who lived on their great plantations with many servants were the most hospitable people in the world Always eager to entertain a stranger and the English sailors were given the freedom of the shore The friendship anchored a short distance down the river from where John Paul's older brother lived and the boy Immediately went to see him and stayed as his guest for some time this brother William had been adopted by a wealthy planter named Jones And the latter was delighted with the young John Paul, and tried to get him to leave the sailor's life, and settle on the Rappahannock. But much as John liked the easy life of the plantation, the fine riding horses, the wide fields, and splendid rivers, the call of the sea was dearer to him. And when the friendship dropped down the Rappahannock, bound for Tobago and the Barbados, he was on board of her those were adventurous days for sailors and merchants money was to be made in many ways and consciences were not over careful as to the ways the prosperous traders of virginia did not mind taking an interest in some ocean rover bound on pirates business or in the more lawful slave trade with the west coast of africa for a time however young john paul sailed for mr younger and was finally paid by being given a one-sixth interest in a ship, called King George's Packet. The boy was now first mate, and trade with England being dull, he and the captain decided to try the slave trade. For two years they made prosperous voyages between Jamaica and the coast of Guinea, helping to found the fortunes of some of the best-known families of America by importing slaves. After a year, however, John Paul tired of the business, and sold his share of the ship to the captain for about 1,000 guineas. He was not yet 21, but his seafaring life had already made him fairly well-to-do. He planned to go home and see his family in Scotland, and took passage in the brig John O'Gaunt. Life on shipboard was full of perils then. And very soon after the brig had cleared the windward islands the terrible scourge of yellow fever was found to be on the vessel Within a few days the captain the mate and all of the crew but five had died of the disease John Paul was fully exposed to it, but he and the five men escaped it He was the only one of those left who knew anything about navigation so he took command and after a stormy passage with a crew much too small to handle the brig he managed to bring her safely to whitehaven with all her cargo he handled her as skillfully as he had the small yawl in solway firth the owners of the john O'Gaunt were delighted and gave john paul and his five sailors the ten per cent share of the cargo which the salvage laws entitled them to in addition they offered him the command of a splendid full-rigged new merchantman, which was to sail between England and America, and a tenth share of all the profits. It was a very fine offer to a man who had barely come of age. But the youth had shown that he had few equals as a mariner. Good fortune shone upon him. He had no sooner sailed up the Rappahannock again and landed at the plantation where his brother lived. Then he learned that the rich old Virginian William Jones had recently died and in his will had named him as one of his heirs He had always cherished a fancy for the sturdy black-haired boy who had made him that visit The will provided that John Paul should add the planter's name to his own The young captain did not object to this and so henceforth he was known as John Paul Jones Scores of stories are told of the young captain's adventures He loved danger and it was his nature to enjoy a fight with men or with the elements on A voyage to Jamaica he met with serious trouble Fever again reduced the crew to six men and Jones was the only officer able to be on deck a Huge Negro named Maxwell tried to start a mutiny and capture the ship for his own uses He rushed at Jones and the latter had to seize a belaying pin and hit him over the head The man fell badly hurt, and soon after reaching Jamaica, died. Jones gave himself up to the authorities, and was tried for murder on the high seas. He said to the court, I had two brace of loaded pistols in my belt, and could easily have shot him. I struck with a belaying pin in preference, because I hoped that I might subdue him without killing him. He was acquitted, and soon after offered command of a new ship. Built to trade with India the charm of life in Virginia Appealed more and more strongly to the sailor he liked the new country the society of the young cities along the Atlantic coast And he spent less time on the high seas and more time fishing and hunting on his own land and in Chesapeake Bay He might have settled quietly into such prosperous retirement had not the Minutemen of Concord startled the new world into stirring action John Paul Jones loved America, and he loved ships. Consequently, he was one of the very first to offer his services in building a new navy. Congress was glad to have him. He was known as a man of the greatest courage and of supreme nautical skill. On September 23, 1779, Paul Jones, on board the American ship Bonham Richard, met the British frigate Serapis off the English coast. A battle of giants followed, for both ships were manned by brave crews and commanded by extraordinarily skillful officers. The short, black haired, agile American commander saw his ship catch fire, stood on his quarter deck while the blazing spars, sails, and rigging fell about him, while his men were mowed down by the terrific broadsides of the Serapis, and calmly directed the fire of shot at the enemy. Terribly as the Bonham Richard suffered, the Serapis was in still worse plight. Two-thirds of her men were killed or wounded when Paul Jones gave the signal to board her. The Americans swarmed over the enemy's bulwarks and armed with pistol and cutlass cleared the deck. The captain of the Serapis fought his ship to the last, but when he saw the Americans sweeping everything before them and already heading for the quarter deck, he himself seized the ensign halyards and struck his flag. Both ships were in flames, and the smoke was so thick that it was some minutes before men realized his surrender. There was little to choose between the two vessels. Each was a floating mass of wreckage. A little later, the English captain went on board the Bonhomme Richard and tendered his sword to the young American. The latter looked hard at the English officer. "'Captain Pearson?' he asked questioningly. The other bowed. "'Ah, I thought so. I am John Paul Jones, once Small John Paul of Arbigland in the Firth. Do you remember me? Pearson looked at the smoke-grimed face, the keen black eyes, the fine figure. I shouldn't have known you. Yes, I remember now. Paul Jones took the sword that was held out to him and asked one of his midshipmen to escort the British captain to his cabin. He could not help smiling as a curious recollection came to him. He looked up at the masthead above him there floated a flag bearing thirteen red and white stripes and the blue corner Filled with stars. It was the very flag of his dream as a boy Thus it was that the sturdy Scotch boy full of the daring spirit of his highland ancestors became the great sea fighter of a new country and ultimately wrote his name in history as the father of the American Navy End of chapter 8